0: Welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we talk to C-level leaders from across the payments landscape. We'll be discussing the products and services that impact the payment space today, as well as trends and predictions for the future of payments. We will also hear stories from our guests about their journeys to the top.
1: FinTech Spring Meetup is basically our launch event for FinTech Meetup. It's online because that's all we can do right now is be online. So it's online, it's a meetings program. We have an absolutely phenomenal lineup of people that are joining. We expect to sell out at 2,000 people in the next week or so. And it's everyone from you know, large major banks to mid-tier and small banks and credit unions, the networks, the processes, a phenomenal group of, of fintech companies, over 100 VCs. They're all there to do meetings with each other. We expect to facilitate on the order of 15,000 or more meetings.
0: That was Anil Agarwal, founder, chairman, and CEO of FinTech Meetup, and he is our special guest this week. This is episode 89 of the Leaders in Payments podcast, and I'm your host, Greg Myers. And hey, before we get started, if you happen to office in Houston, Austin, or North Texas, check out Fuse Workspace, where their mission is to help others do more. Check them out at fuseworkspace.com. Okay, back to the show. Anil was born in England, came to the U.S. when he was 16, and has been an entrepreneur basically his entire career. He started two businesses and payments early in his career and sold one of them to Google. At Google, he started actually working on Money 2020. In 2011, he started Money 2020, and the first event was in 2012. He subsequently sold Money 2020 in 2014 and launched Shop Talk in 2015. Anil has some great stories and amazing insights about how he started both companies and about disruption in events. Fast forward and Anil has started FinTech Meetup, which has its first event next month, June 15th through 17th, called FinTech Spring Meetup, which is a virtual event. But of course, Anil has aspirations of building the biggest FinTech event in the industry. If you've been in payments any length of time, you'll know Anil's work. He's a visionary in our industry, and I know you'll enjoy this week's episode. So let's get started. Hi, Anil. Thank you for being here, and welcome to the Leaders in Payments podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself, maybe where you grew up, where you went to school, where you currently live, a few things like that.
1: Sure. Sure. Well, I live in New York City, and we live in Midtown right now. We're actually in the process of moving to the East Village. Uh, I wouldn't have expected to be saying that, but we've been looking for a new place for probably close to three years, and we took advantage of some of the downturn in in New York City prices over the last few months and uh, found a place in the East Village that we love. And it has, at least for me, the ultimate luxury, which is a garage in the building, (laughs) So New York's been home for thirty-five years. I moved here when I was sixteen, so I I won't comment on how how old I am, but you could do the math. From from England, which is where I grew up, and I came here to New York City for the summer when I was sixteen, fell in love and and didn't go back. And started off my career as an accountant, worked at Pricewaterhouse, then I became a lawyer, clerked for some judges, worked for some big law firms, but Always wanted to be an entrepreneur and and uh, ended up going that direction when I was in my late 20s.
0: Okay. And why was that? Why do you think you wanted to be an entrepreneur?
1: Well, I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. My dad had a, a factory in, in London that made costume jewelry. And one of the things that I'd loved doing after school was was calling him up and asking him to come pick me up so I could spend time there. And, and uh, I guess from those days, uh, always wanted to do something like that, build things. It, it just resonated with me. I'm the only one in the family, my brother and, and sister didn't do that. But to me, it was something that I always
0: aspired to. Great. Well, let's talk about your career a little bit. You, you started to talk about it, but let's, let's talk about how you got into payments.
1: You know, I've been in, in payments for 22 years. And today, people go into fintech payments by design. Uh, About 22 years ago, no one went into a uh, payments by design. I, I think anyone that's been in it for as long as I have got into it the same way I did, and that is they stumbled into it. You know, I'll, I'll make a long story short here. But I, I was working as a lawyer at a at a law firm. I had intended to get my secretary a holiday gift, but you know, was on back to back calls, didn't have a chance to to run out to Bloomingdale's to pick up a gift card. This is now in. 1998. Yeah, it was 1998. And so I, get, I put a little bit of cash into an envelope, gave it to her, apologized that I didn't have a chance to go to Bloomingdale's and buy a more thoughtful gift. And her response to me was interesting. She said, You know, I'm glad you didn't because I think things are overpriced at Bloomingdale's. And that gave me the idea for a secondary market for gift cards that could be created online. And as we evolved that idea, it turned into how do we use the established payment networks in new use cases like gift, for example, so that we can create new types of products outside of the use of those networks by traditional types of organizations like banks for traditional types of products like consumer lending and deposit access, and 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 so from that little gem of an idea came Clarity Payment Solutions, which ended up being one of the first. Third party processors, issuing processes that focused on these alternative uses of the networks.
0: Okay. Is that the company that you ended up selling to Google?
1: It is not. So, that company, uh, I raised about 19 million in venture, mostly from financial institutions. Ended up selling that company in 2004 to Tesis, which is now part of Global. Um, and Tesis at the time was probably best known as being the largest processor of consumer credit cards. I, I then joined T-SYS as the CEO of T-SYS prepaid for a couple of years and then worked with the original engineering team from Clarity to create a new company called TXVIA. And TXVIA was very similar to Clarity and that it was an issuing processor. Uh, I'd say probably the biggest difference was that one of the things that we struggled with at Clarity was, you know, if you build a single platform, and you're trying to process a wide range of products on that platform. So we were doing everything from gift cards, as I mentioned, which if you're distributing those on J-hooks, you, know, you want to create large quantities, millions of gift cards, and then you know, have inventory management tools and things like that, all the way to flexible spending account cards that are sent out to individuals one at a time that have different rules around authorization and selective authorization specifically so when you're trying to manage so many different requirements on a single platform especially with you know data driven configuration the challenge becomes how do you scale that platform to all of these products without having kind of the brittleness that that can re- result along the along the way of so much complexity so txv was an attempt to to solve that by creating a platform builder instead of a single platform. So TXVIA was a source code development tool that allowed us to build platforms very quickly using a model-driven architecture. It was a platform as a service where we would define the requirements of any given platform in the form of data flows, call flows, workflows, and then compile that directly to executable code. So so for TXV, we raised $50 million. Our lead investors included Bain Capital Ventures, Oak Investment Partners. Uh, and that's the company that in, in 2012 ended up selling to Google to become a, a part of the Google wallet infrastructure.
0: Okay, okay. So then you went from these, these two startups to working for Google. What were you doing at Google? You know,
1: it's interesting. I joined Google and uh, ended up focusing pretty much all of my time when I was at Google on creating money 2020. Uh, from, from my perspective, this was a point in time. It's, it's 10 years ago, roughly that, that the payments, banking, broadly financial services industry needed to come together in an entirely different way. Uh, if I think about innovation that had happened during the 2000s, really innovation that leveraged the internet pre-financial crisis. Uh, it was really to build products that were more long tail. So for example, if you look at the things we were doing at Clarity and TXVIA, uh, they were, you know, how to use pay- these payment networks for new use cases. Or if you look at what other people were doing, you know, PayPal creating payments for a new marketplace like eBay or online acquiring because e-commerce was new. What didn't happen during those, that first wave of innovation was, was any, Disruption of financial services and products at the head of the demand curve, and so what I started seeing come out coming out of the financial crisis was that it seemed for the very first time that fintech was going to broaden it in its definition uh, and begin to include the ability to disrupt at the head of the demand curve and so that to me felt like that's what I should be working on. That's what I should be doing. That's what Money 2020 was. And I spoke to the, the, the folks at Google about that, and their view was, you know, you can spend your time while you're here at Google doing just that, focused on Money 2020, see how that goes, see how you feel about staying at Google longer term. Uh, they really did give me the, the room and the time to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, and I think that that is actually, in many ways, the beauty of a place like Google. So I would say that you know I spent the majority of my time at Google, really focused on kicking off this industry-wide initiative that you know ha,
0: ha, that is Money Twenty Twenty. Mm-hmm. So you know it's kind of you know going from a a payments company to uh, still in payments, but events seems like kind of a, an odd jump so how did you why did you think events after having been sort of into the the middle of payments so to speak it's a good question
1: you know i viewed it probably less as, as events you know we, we can talk more about events and and fintech meetup and and my view of of for example the future of events in a second but but going back 10 years to creating money 2020 I viewed it more as creating an industry-wide initiative, building a new community of people that that I believed would interact differently going forward than they had in the past, and 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 the event format seemed like a a important and critical way in which to bring that community together and do that. It, it really built on some other initiatives I had done in earlier in 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 the issuing network side of things that created a non trade association in 2005 called the Network Branded Prepaid Card Association. We focused on government relations, lobbying, media and consumer education, working with consumer groups so that they could understand the fairness of, of some of the new products that we were creating and how to think about them. So industry building was something that was near and dear to me already. And, and, and it seemed like the best way to realize that was to bring everyone together in the form of an in-person event. So I would say that it was at the time it was, it was less about going into the events industry and it was more about solving for a particular thing, which was, you know, how do we accelerate what is going to be head of the demand curve innovation by bringing people together? And so I, I guess it's kind of like, you know, the way that I got into the payments industry 10 years before that, stumbled into it, you know, maybe, maybe I could say the same thing about yeah. events. With the objective of trying to create community, I stumbled into the events industry.
0: Right, right. What's interesting is I started at um, Chase Payment Tech in 2006. And around that 2011-12 timeframe, I I remember it very clearly that Money 2020 was launching. People were talking about it. We had no idea, should we go? Should we not go? It's never been held before. What's it going to be like? Um, I remember it very clearly, which is, is kind of funny. But the name, Money 2020, did you have that name all the way back to when you were at Google or was that something that came along later?
1: No, that was always the name. And, and in fact, initially, it was, it was intended to be a reference to the year because this is going back 10 years, 2020 felt so far away. Um, and we even came up with a theme song. And, and I remember working on some of the lyrics and, it, and some of the lyrics in that theme song were, you know, what will it be in 2020? Like, it seemed so far off that, you know, we would almost never reach it and this name would be good forever. And kind of, you know, around 2014, we put a slash between the two twenties and and made it more about vision. But but yeah, that was the name from the very beginning as a reference to the
0: year. Wow, that's that's cool. So around 2014, you personally exited Money 2020 and started Shop Talk. So can you talk about that journey a little bit?
1: Sure, we did exit Money 2020 in 2014. But, uh, but we ran it until 2016 /17. We had a pretty considerable earnout until 17. I, I ran Money 2020 with my wife, Simran. so we did that for five years. And one of the things that I had started noticing when I was at TXV and, and and, I'd say Google as well, was innovation on the other side of the transaction. So, for example, I had extensive conversations with Groupon about what back then people called, you know, online to offline commerce. And even Google had some thoughts back then about Google wallet as potentially an AdWords platform for the offline world or, you know, 90% of commerce was happening offline. How do you potentially use mobile, you know, to, to bridge that gap? And so I'd been introduced to that other side of the transaction. And so in 2015, It seemed to me that while the most recent version of digitization had hit fintech or financial services pretty early on, I think partly because of the financial crisis or mainly even because of the financial crisis, it was late to hit other industries. And it felt to me that in 2015, retail and e-commerce were about to go through the same type of -of head-of-the-demand-curve disruption that fintech had started going through around 2010, 2011. That's why I started Talk. I felt we could do the same thing for retail and e-commerce in terms of building community that we had done for the financial services industry with Money 2020. And the interesting thing was kind of getting back to your point of, you know, when you first heard about Money 2020, should we go? What is this? You know, one of the things people said to me back then was, don't we already have enough? Payments events. When we launched pork, people in the retail industry said the same thing: "Don't we have enough retail events?" And by that time, I was able to answer with confidence and say, "I don't know. I've never been to a retail event, but we think we're doing something different. We think that if we build this community, we're going to help lead the narrative around a period of dis- significant period of disruption that we think is going to happen pretty soon." And, and people looked at us and said. What are you guys talking about? The good news, at least for the event, was that if you look at the first quarter of 2016, right before we held the first shop talk, that was really the first bad quarter in retail. The first quarter where I think it became very apparent to the retail industry that they were going to be disrupted in very significant ways. And so the first shop talk was 50% bigger than the first Money 2020. People got it right away. And by 2019, our third show, uh, Shop Talk was roughly the same size as, as Money 2020. So we did end up accomplishing our objective, which was to do for retail what we had done for payments and banking with this new event, Shop Talk. But there was a big difference though between Shop Talk and, and, and Money 2020. You know, you asked, you know, how, you know, about getting into the events industry. By the time I was doing Shop Talk, We weren't stumbling into events anymore. We were now building events by design with with a lot of critical thinking about the future of the events industry and kind of combining my background in in technology and, and, and events. I started really focusing on how do we leverage technology to build an event experience that disrupts events themselves? So kind of, you know, the same theme of. All industries are getting disrupted. All industries are being digitized. You know, they say all companies will be tech companies, but you know, that applies to event companies too. So about four or five years ago, you know, we started putting an engineering team together, really focused on if you're going to disrupt events with technology, what do you build? What is the goal? What are the workflows look like? What, what is, you know, what is the value proposition? and we realized a, a lot of those things at shop talk you know if i were to take a step back and say you know how much of of shop talk was tech enabled or at least one third of the revenue of shop talk was derived from technology enabled experiences so i'd say very significant and as i look at the next 10 years i think we're going to move from you know an environment where, if you really invest in technology, one third of the value is derived from from technology enabling the experience to probably closer to ninety percent of the value.
0: So, between launching Shop Talk and today, do you do you still own and run Shop Talk?
1: We sold Shop Talk in two thousand nineteen. We actually sold it to the same guy that had bought Money twenty twenty, except he had left that organization became the CEO of a a different UK, publicly traded UK company. He'd always wanted to buy it, Talk, and he'd come to the shows. You know, we'd we'd always resisted selling it. And and frankly, my plan had been to, to keep it long term. And towards the end of 2019, that decision changed for a bunch of reasons. And I called up Mark and said, I know that you've always wanted to buy it. If you want to buy it, you know, we can do something. Uh, he said, I'll drop everything else I'm doing. It's a pleasant surprise to get the call. And we'll close 10 weeks later. So we did exit that business in, in 2019, end of 19. For the last year, we've been focused. We continued to work with Mark on the transition of that business. And for the last year, we worked very closely with him on how do we take a lot of the technology-enabled experience that we created offline for Shark and how do we move it online? You know, the, the key thing that we were really doing differently at Shop Talk when you compare us to frankly all other events was we were using technology to create interactions. So at each shop talk, our technology was facilitating literally tens of thousands of interactions among people. And so when the pandemic hit, we worked very closely with the Shop Talk team and with Mark to build out And a meetings program to put online, and we did that starting in October of last year. Hugely successful. We've done three of those online events in the retail space since then. You know that's really been kind of the historical shop talk story.
0: And those three online events you're talking about were were they really focused on the meetings and the interaction, and less about? You know, the virtual trade show with content and all of that.
1: You know, it's, it's a great question because obviously everyone in the events industry has had to confront for the last year. What do you do online when events can't be done offline? I have a very simple view of things. And, and that is that the offline or in person, let's call it experience consists of a whole bundle of things. It consists of maybe in broad categories, learning, networking and trading. So there's sessions, there's speakers, there's an exhibit hall, there's lunches, there's receptions, there's dinners, there's entertainment, and uh, you know there's various ways in which, in which people network. You know what I saw happen over the last year was was some some people took the entirety of that and moved it online, in, in multi-day event experiences. Other people took pieces of it and moved it online. So, for example, some people did webinars or fireside chats and panels and and dedicated their time to that. Others added virtual exhibit halls, etc. What we did was just, given our experience in, in tech enabling interaction, was we felt that the most valuable part of events in the end is that interaction. We have a significant amount of experience facilitating it offline. Let's focus on putting that online. And so that's what we did. We the, these events that we've done the three events. There have been no speakers. There have been no sessions. It's been purely dedicated to meetings. We've kind of unbundled the experience and, and moved that value proposition online. And it's worked unbelievably well. We've done a total of around thir- over 30,000 meetings across those three events. Uh, and the feedback has been phenomenal. We ask people relative to each meeting were you satisfied, not satisfied, don't know? And consistently, 90% of the meetings are tagged as satisfied. I think it has a lot to do with how our meetings program works. It's it's double opt-in. We're not assuming that we know who you should meet with. We're providing you with the tools so that you can act on who you want to meet with. We're solving the network effect on bringing great people together. And then we're, we're ultimately using a format, which is 15-minute meetings, that allows people to be generous with their time and open to, to conversations when they're us to have those conversations. So, you know, my view is that online, we are, you know, we are focused on on meetings. But offline, and you know, I'm a huge believer in offline events. We, we've, we're we doing online, because that's all we've been able to do. But I can't wait to get back to doing in-person events. I can't get back to wait to get back to doing in-person events in Las Vegas. And that that is our plan for FinTech Meetup, as soon as we're able to do that, is to go offline and get back to doing events you know, with the complete experience.
0: So coming up next month, you've got the FinTech Spring Meetup. So, so can you tell the audience a little bit about that and, and what's going on for that event?
1: Sure. So FinTech Spring Meetup is a, basically our launch event for FinTech Meetup. Uh, it's online because that's all we can do right now is be online. So it's online. It's a meetings program. We have an absolutely phenomenal lineup of people that are joining As of today, we're over seventeen hundred people that have signed up. We we expect to, you know, sell out at two thousand people in the next week or so. And it's everyone from you know large major banks to mid tier and small banks and credit unions, the networks, the processors, a phenomenal group of of fintech companies, over a hundred VCs, and basically it is what I just described that they're all there to do meetings with each other. We expect to facilitate on the order of 15,000 or more meetings, and we think it's a phenomenal opportunity for people to you know, touch base with people they might not have, have talked to in, in many years and use that to open doors or connect with entirely new people and fill your pipeline or make new partnerships and things like that. And, and we've removed, as I mentioned, what, what I view as, as the distractions. There are no speakers. There are no sessions. We take you through a series of workflows where you get to tell everyone you want to meet with, get to opt into people that want to meet with you. Ultimately, the the product is we put a series of meetings on your calendar. They're all 15 minutes in our experiences, we average eight to ten meetings per person. So the days of the event, you're not logging in and joining a webinar. You're going to your calendar, you're joining a series of meetings, just like you would, you know, any other meetings, any other day. You know, going to your calendar and and
0: joining them. When you join via your calendar, are you sort of going to a, a FinTech meetup platform to do that, or is that just a typical phone call?
1: No, it's a FinTech meetup platform. So we've built the entire event tech stack from registration, ticketing, all the way to the video conference experience itself. And the reason we did that was we really wanted to control that environment. So, for example, the meetings are 15 minutes. They end automatically at 15 minutes. Now you have a countdown clock and you know it's coming up. There's a button on the screen that allows you to share your contact information. So we get to control that environment and make it a higher quality experience than, than a phone call or using a plat, you know, third-party platform would, would allow us to do so. We've also built our own app if you want to join using our app from your phone you can do that it's a complete end to end system that's completely proprietary that allows us to deliver what we think is not only an exceptional experience but a really unique relative to what anybody else is able to offer
0: right right so this is the the first event for fintech meetup so so what's the vision where does this go after this event
1: well the the vision is to build the largest us fintech event you know that is that is the goal with technology being the key point of differentiation the efficiency it brings and the benefits and value that it facilitates by creating interactions and and, and we expect that event to be offline so like I said we're launching online because it's the only thing we can do but you know what I've done and love doing for over a decade now is is doing in-person events and that's what we're going to be doing so very soon, we're going to be announcing uh, the dates and location of our first fintech meetup in person. Uh, it'll be an annual event going forward. It'll be in Las Vegas. Uh, I'm just not quite ready to announce the venue and, and the dates just yet, but, but stay tuned because we're going to be re- uh, announcing those pretty soon. But it'll be you know a complete comprehensive uh, experience. We will have speakers. We will have sessions. We will have an exhibit hall. We will have all the experiences that, that people love because they bring a sense of community for everybody. And, and we'll overlay it with technology, just like we did at Shop Talk, creating tens of thousands of valuable interactions in addition to all of those other things. So, you know, my view is that the future of events is a future enabled by technology. There's no Question about that? It's it's happening in every industry. Obviously, we talk about it in fintech. It's been happening there for for a decade. It's about time that you know the events industry evolved and started using technology as well. You know the way I, I I think about it is you know if you think about the traditional event experience at all events, it's kind of left to chance. You know, maybe you buy a booth and maybe the right person walks by, or maybe you're in the hallway and you stumble into someone. To me, that's like taking a taxi. Sure, you can go out on the street, you can put your arm out, there's going to be a driver that takes their eyes off the road and finds you, and, and there's going to be a connection. But you know, if you think about Uber, Uber engineers those connections way more efficiently, way more intelligently. People are, you, know, you can connect people digitally. So the way that I think about it is the historical overall event experience throughout the events industry is like a taxi. The experiences that that we build are like Uber. And so, as I think about the future of of the events industry offline, I think of it as an entirely tech enabled experience. I'm not talking about hybrid, by the way, just to be clear. I'm not talking about an an in person experience that someone can experience online. I'm talking about technology that powers the offline experience for everyone that is there in person. You know, I, I personally am skeptical. About hybrid events, where technology is being used to allow people to engage online with an with an offline event, I I, I I can understand why events companies would want to do that right now because of concern around when and how many people will come back to those offline events. But but you know I I wonder whether it's the worst of both worlds as opposed to the best of both worlds. You know if you're going to be in person there's there's magic to, to that offline experience that that can't be replicated if one person is offline and one person is online um you know does it just become about streaming content for example so I think that remains to be seen. I'm not going to judge it entirely just yet, but when i i, I i'm I'm really bringing that up to be clear about what I mean about technology powering the the offline in person experience, it is really about a digital overlay on an offline, entirely offline experience. I'm not a high, I'm not talking about hybrid. You know, in terms of online only events going forward, I think that there'll be more a part of the mix, but but I think it's it's not only online events the way that we've seen them, more obviously over the last year. I would put in that category all synchronous communication online communication, digital communication channels like Clubhouse or Slack that allow people to interact in new ways. I think that you know, if you take Clubhouse, for example, it gives you the ability to fire up a panel, build an audience, and have the kind of conversation that traditionally you could really only have at, at in-person events. So in many ways, Clubhouse is an events disruptor. In fact, I think if you really think about what technology ends up doing long-term, uh, it ends up commoditizing everything. And, and I think that technology is going to commoditize a lot of what happens at offline events in an online environment. And Clubhouse is a good example of commoditization of content that has traditionally been only available at offline events. So I think there is a future for, let's call it an omni-channel future for events where where it's online and offline, but there's no substitute for the offline experience in its entirety by moving it online. People still want to see each other, talk to each other. We are humans. We are social. And so there's always going to be that. Uh, but I think around the edges, there will be value that's delivered online, that wasn't being delivered online pre-pandemic.
0: Yeah, I would completely agree with you there. So before we wrap up, do you mind telling the audience how they can learn more about the, the FinTech Spring Meetup?
1: Sure. It's very easy. Just go to fintechmeetup.com. Like I said, we probably have just under about another 300 tickets left before we sell out at 2,000. So I'd encourage everyone to get their ticket at fintechmeetup.com.
0: Anything else related to payments or fintech or events that you wanted to to mention before we go?
1: I think we're good. I think it's been a great conversation and I appreciate it.
0: You no, know, yeah, it's been it's been wonderful and, and I really appreciate your time. I know it's very valuable, so thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Greg. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well and until the next story.